And now, wherever you listen to podcasts, it's The Sean Sandifer Show. He's a lawyer for the modern age, a rising voice for the up-and-coming generation. He keeps it real and tells it like it is. Here's Sean. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sean Sandifer Show for a special edition post-midterm election Wednesday bonus episode. I am Sean Sandifer, your host. I wanted to take a moment to touch base with you, provide some updates and analysis on what we saw in yesterday's midterm elections. There are still several races that are too close and too early to call, but I wanted to give you an idea with the big picture and and then kind of go down more narrow, narrower from there, looking at some more specific governor and Senate and House races. So if you follow politics or the news at all this year, then you know that the traditional thinking was that the Republicans were anticipated to have a big election cycle. You might have heard terms like red wave, red tsunami, And what happened, unfortunately, is that we did not see that. You might say we saw a red ripple, but the facts are that the Republican Party majorly underperformed the expectations that were set for them in this election cycle. Why were there high expectations for Republicans? Well, there were a lot of reasons for that. First of all, if you go back historically, the party in power, which in this case is Democrats and Joe Biden, traditionally performs very poorly in the midterm elections for that president's first term. That happened in 2010 with Barack Obama. That happened in 2018 with Donald Trump. And it was expected to happen in 2022 under Joe Biden. In addition, President Biden has historically low approval ratings. Some people put him in the high 30s. Some people have him in the mid 40s. But there's a wide thinking based on public opinion polling and and the American people's feedback that the country is on the wrong track, that the economy is not doing well, and that Joe Biden does not have the cognitive capacity or the stamina or the ability to adequately perform the job as president. That is a wide thinking across the country. Of course, there's some partisan divide on that, but I've seen polls that show 75-80% of people think the country is on the wrong track, think things are out of control, especially as it relates to inflation and costs. So that's the big picture going into this election is we were expecting Republicans to do very well. At the same time, while we were expecting that, we knew that there were a lot of close races. So people were saying on Monday, you know, there's a lot of close races. Democrats could hang on. They could end up having a very decent, respectable night. And on the flip side of that, Republicans could have the momentum, given the the factors I just mentioned, that they sweep those races. And it looks like a landslide when we wake up on Wednesday morning after the midterms. Again, that didn't happen. That's not what we saw here. That's not what we saw happen. And I am going to, I'm going to start with the big picture. I'm going to go down into more specific races, and then we can kind of talk about why. And I think, why did the Republicans underperform expectations? That varies state to state. That varies uh, based on the candidates. There are some national factors that I think uh, are at play here, but I'll, I'll kind of talk about each one to the best of my ability. So that's the big picture. Going to the governor races now, there were several 
competitive governor races. And by the way, if I miss any race or I don't talk about one that you wanted to hear about, send me an email, hello, H-E-L-L-O, at theshawnsandifershow.com, or message me on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at Sean Sandifer. You can follow me there, communicate with me there. So if I miss something or you have a question that I didn't touch on, because that's very possible, just go ahead and reach out to me. So starting with the governor races, I'm gonna start right here in my home state of Illinois, which was downstate farmer and state senator Darren Bailey up against incumbent Democrat Governor J.B. Pritzker. Now, Illinois is historically a blue state. Most of the state by land votes red, but the areas around Chicago, which is Cook County, and some of the surrounding suburbs, as well as Peoria, tend to vote blue because the population center of Illinois is so concentrated up by Chicago in the northern part of the state. But for many people, J.B. Pritzker is a very unpopular governor. Certainly downstate where I'm from, and in the middle part of the state, in the southern part of the state, J.B. Pritzker is very unpopular. They view him, people view him as not strong enough on crime, on addressing violent crime in Illinois cities. They don't like the policies he instituted during COVID and the lockdowns and the mandates that he made. It really infringed on people's uh, people's freedoms and rights. And, and many people also view J.B. Pritzker as anti-business, as having policies that hurt business through excessive taxing in Illinois, one being the gas tax hike that Democrats in, in Illinois implemented that have hurt Illinois working families and Illinois small businesses. And so Darren Bailey worked very, very hard. He built a really good social media platform on Facebook. He was constantly on there doing lives, doing videos. He lived in downtown Chicago in recent months campaigning there. And so there was a feeling, especially in downstate, which is where Darren Bailey's from. Um, I, I've talked to Darren Bailey on several occasions. Darren and his wife, Cindy, they're very good faithful people. They are dedicated people, hardworking people. Darren Bailey is a farmer. He, his family owns land where my family has some land or nearby. So I'm familiar with him. And I think the, the thinking was that he had a shot. Behind closed doors, obviously everybody knew that J.B. Pritzker was the, the favorite and that historically in Illinois, it's going to vote blue, but that Darren Bailey had worked really hard and that the grassroots movement might be enough to push him over the edge. Certainly there was hope that even if Darren Bailey didn't win, that the election would be too close to call and would take longer in the night to call the result. So I was hoping Bailey would pull it out, but if not, I was looking for a margin of somewhere around 45% for Bailey to 53% for J.B. Pritzker. If we go back to 2018, when incumbent Republican Governor Bruce Rauner was defeated after his first term, Rauner only received 38.8% of the vote to J.B. Pritzker's 54.5. So Rauner got 30, let's say 39. J.B. Pritzker got 55. Bailey is currently outperforming that, but he's at 43. So Bailey's at 43 to J.B. Pritzker's 54. So slightly outperforming 2018, but obviously still not enough to push Darren Bailey over the finish line. And look, I just think um, in Illinois, it's really tough for a Republican to win a statewide race. The Republicans that have won a statewide race in the last 25 years they usually serve one term. I think of Bruce Rauner, who won the governor race. He was a Chicago billionaire, won the governor race, moderate Republican, served one term as governor. His term was plagued by gridlock and almost getting nothing done because the state house is controlled by super majorities of Democrats. And he was ousted handily in 2018. Again, he only got 38.8% of the vote on his reelection campaign. I also think of Mark Kirk, who termed another moderate Republican who did one term in the U.S. Senate. So it's tough for a Republican to have, it's tough for a Republican to get to office in Illinois, and it's tough for a Republican to stay. 
Basically, the political climate has to be such that the Democrat incumbent is hated for some reason or that their voters just won't show up. Or in Illinois' case, maybe they're in prison or they're, they're indicted on criminal charges or corruption. But that wasn't the case here. There just weren't enough factors at play. I think people really did not like J.B. Pritzker, especially two years ago during the COVID lockdowns. But now that a lot of that has lifted, I think some of that anger and vitriol that was directed at him has subsided. And that was enough to carry him over the edge. With 90% uh, of votes in, he's at 54% of the vote. So it's about 2.1 2 million to 1.65 million for Bailey. So 2.1 to 1.65. I think one other factor I'll say on that is, look, to win Illinois, you've got to perform well in Chicago and the suburbs. And the reality is Darren Bailey had a southern twang. He's a downstate farmer, like I said. And I think that that just did not have broad appeal with moderate-leaning Democrats, independents, and moderate Republicans in Chicago and the surrounding counties. For them to elect a, a Republican governor, they're looking for someone who's more like them. They might elect somebody from Chicago, a Republican from Chicago like Bruce Rauner was. But Darren Bailey was not. He's not of Chicago. He's not from Chicago. So even though he made a very, very good effort at trying to live there and work there and connect, at the end of the day, I think he was just too different from them to sway a lot of voters or the, enough voters for what what was needed. But he did run a valiant campaign. I think that his message uh, inspired a lot of people. And at the end of the day, hey, he's at 1.7 million votes. So that's that's not anything to be ashamed of. He put, he, he, he put a good effort in. So that's that's my thoughts on the, the governor race here in Illinois. But as for more governor races, we were also watching New York, another blue state like Illinois, three to one registered Democrats to Republicans. Republican Representative Lee Zeldin was looking to unseat incumbent Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul. Similar issues to Illinois, high crime, high inflation. And Lee Zeldin ran a very good race, but with 95% of the vote in, he is down by about five and a half points. So 47.2% for Zeldin, about 52.8% for the incumbent Kathy Hochul. That's a close margin in New York. That's a very good showing by Lee Zeldin, but it was not enough for the Republican to be elected in New York. Kathy Hochul won that race. But again, for a state that has such an advantage for Democrats, for Lee Zeldin to perform that well is notable. And also, I think Lee Zeldin's performance helped Republicans pick up some seats in Congress in New York. So that's the New York governor race. For governor, we were also keeping an eye on Pennsylvania. Michigan, Wisconsin, which are three key states for uh, Republicans to try to take back the presidency in 2024. We were also watching another blue state in Oregon. And in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the incumbent Democrats in Michigan and Wisconsin held on. Michigan by about 11 percentage points, and in Wisconsin by three and a half, 51.2% to 47.8. Both of those races, the polls were showing Republicans very close could have flipped those seats, those governor seats, but that did not happen. The incumbent Democrats in Michigan and Wisconsin hung on, and that's notable because those states are very important for the 2024 election, and now with the Democrat governors and Democrat executive branch, they are going to have more sway and more control over the electoral process going into 2024, whereas it's a lot more, it's a lot better, it's a lot more advantageous for a candidate of a national campaign to have an ally of their own party 
in the state house and in the state uh, executive mansion. And now Republicans and possibly Donald Trump won't have that in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where we saw Josh Shapiro handily beat uh, the Republican Trump-endorsed candidate Doug Mastriano. Um, I'm, I'm going to come back to Pennsylvania when I talk about the Senate. Another governor race is Oregon. That is a very blue state. I talked about it on my last podcast. And actually, because of all the problems that are going on there, the Republican candidate in Oregon is running very close to the Democratic candidate. Currently, the results are at 46.2% for the Democrat, 44.3% for the Republican. This state conducts mostly male, all-male elections. And so ballots postmarked by Election Day can arrive up to seven days later, which is November 15th. So we might not have the full results for Oregon for a while, but there's still a chance that the Republican there will pull off a major upset. So the states I've talked about, Illinois, New York, and Oregon, they were expected to go Democrat. Those are heavily blue states. But the Republicans there were, people were hopeful that Republicans could pull off an upset victory. And that did not happen in Illinois. That did not happen in New York, although Lee Zeldin was closer. And then again in the Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, we saw Democrat governors reelected there as well and hold office there, which has its, like I said, its stakes for 2024 in the presidential election. The Wisconsin race was close. The Michigan race and Pennsylvania race, not so much. And the polls were showing that it was going to be closer. So when I started to see those results come in, it became clear to me, oh no, you know, this is not the, the red wave that many were predicting. Now, that doesn't mean that there was all bad news for Republicans. In Georgia, Brian Kemp, the incumbent governor, was handily reelected for the second time over Stacey Abrams, who was once seen as a rising star in the Democratic Party. She's now been defeated twice in Georgia. It's currently 53.4% for Brian Kemp and 45.8% for Stacey Abrams with more than 95% of votes in. That's notable because the governor the governor there, Brian Kemp, is has won re-election with over 50% of the vote. But the Senate candidate, the Senate race, which is Herschel Walker, legendary football star, Republican candidate, versus the incumbent Democrat, Raphael Warnock, Reverend Raphael Warnock, is now in about a dead heat. They're both around 49%, and a runoff election has been called. Because in Georgia, if you don't hit 50% of the vote, then the top two candidates go to a runoff. That runoff is scheduled, I believe, for December 6th. So what's interesting is the Republican governor was reelected, but it wasn't enough to pull up the Republican Senate candidate, Herschel Walker, to defeat the incumbent, Raphael Warnock. So they neither one reached 50%. They were both right around 49 So those two candidates will proceed to a runoff election in uh, Georgia in the Senate on December 6th. So while there was not good news for Republicans in Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, and Wisconsin regarding governorships, there was good news in Georgia. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott handily defeated Beto O'Rourke, who's run for Congress, he's run for president, he's run for governor now, he's lost, lost, lost. And the Texas governor beat Beto by 54.8% to 43.8%. That's a win by almost a million votes. Easy win for Greg Abbott there, which is uh, which is just a little bit of a surprise because not that he won, but by the margin that he won because Texas is now viewed more as a purple state, a little bit more of a swing state. So a lot of people thought that race would be closer. Likewise, in Nevada, it's looking like the Republican candidate for governor is going to win there. That's a state that Joe Biden won in 2020 by less than three percentage points. And so it's Again, for the same reasons that Michigan and Wisconsin are relevant, it's relevant that Nevada might have a Republican governor going into 2024. So we've got Georgia, we've got Texas, we've got Nevada. We also have Carrie Lake running very well 
in Arizona for governor with 66% of votes reporting. Carrie Lake is at 49.67% to the Democrat at 50.33, so slightly behind the Democrat. But a lot of the, the votes that are coming are thought to be going heavily to Carrie Lake. And the reason that the votes are delayed is because most people were expected to vote early in Arizona by mail, in person, or by Dropbox. Those ballots require the verification of voter signatures, and officials said the timing of results would depend on how many people return their ballots at the last minute on Election Day. So they are currently in the process of verifying all those ballots. There should be dumps over the next several days. It might take a few days, but the thought is that the the later ballots that are being returned are going to be more heavily in favor of Carrie Lake and that she's looking good there as the Democrat candidate Katie Hobbs has not uh, performed well enough in the Phoenix and Tucson metropolitan areas. So we will see. Carrie Lake's looking pretty good in Arizona. I think the big Republican story of the night is incumbent Governor Ron DeSantis' win in Florida for re-election. With more than 95% of the votes in, DeSantis is leading by 1.5 million votes. That's a landslide margin. 59.4% of the vote to 40% of the vote. That is majorly significant because in 2018, when Ron DeSantis was elected, that race had to go to a recount. It was so close. It used to be where Republicans were, Florida was a really, really competitive state. If you look back at the 2000 election, Bush and Gore, it's always been a really purple state. We didn't know how it'll go, but it has slowly become more Republican over the years because of several factors. I think that more Republicans are moving to Florida from highly Democrat states like Illinois and uh, New York. So you're having a lot of Republicans go to Florida. You have an aging population there that tends to vote more Republican. But you also have a lot of metropolitan areas like Orlando, Miami, Jacksonville, Tampa, and nearly 60% of the vote for Ron DeSantis. I think what that victory shows is that it's proved that he's governed the state well. He has been a good governor for Florida. He kept Florida free he kept business opportunities thriving. He didn't do mandates and lockdowns. He helped Florida recover from the recent hurricane. And people see that. And Ron DeSantis's political brand is doing very, very well in Florida. And he's viewed by many as the best governor in the country. And that showed last night with this landslide win. And that was a race that people thought would be closer. But it was, it was an early call last night, especially in a, in a national context where Republicans didn't do as well as had hoped. For Ron DeSantis to win that large, that is, is notable for sure. And also no surprise here in Arkansas, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the former White House press secretary and daughter of former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, was handily elected governor of Arkansas. I believe that makes her the first female governor of Arkansas. So that's a big win for Sarah Huckabee Sanders as well. So in summary, Democrats hang on in Illinois, in New York, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, but Republicans do very well in Texas, Georgia, Florida, Nevada, it's looking like, and possibly Arizona. We'll see what happens with Carrie Lake, but those are the big governor races uh, of the night. A couple more I probably missed, but those were the big ones that I think I need to highlight right here. As for the U.S. House, the Republicans were expected to take control of the House of Representatives. That is still likely going to happen. Currently, projections are that the GOP is at 206 to the Democrats 177. You need 218 for a majority. 
There's still a lot of outstanding races. It looks like the Republicans will take control of the House. That's relevant because they can control investigations. They can stop the Biden agenda by not passing things through Congress. So that's a, that's a very important thing. But the thing is that Republicans were expected to take the House very easily. It was expected to be called last night, and it was expected to be by a wider margin. Now it's looking like they will still take the House, but by, by a closer margin. So watch for the House call soon, and it'll be interesting to see how far over 218 do the Republicans get? Is it 219? Is it 220? Or can they get up into the, the high 220s, above 225? So watch for that because that will determine how much wiggle room the new Republican Speaker of the House has in terms of controlling his party and rounding up the votes needed to pass certain kinds of legislation, at least through the House. Okay, now as for the Senate, going into the midterm elections, the Senate balance of power was 50-50. It was a 50-50 even split. Democrats in the majority because they are the party with the White House. So Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, is the tie-breaking vote in the United States Senate on a 50-50 tie. The expectation was Republicans would gain one to three seats. People were thinking 51 to 54. There were a lot of toss-up races that were thought that were headed in the Republicans' way, and some of those did not materialize. Currently, as it stands with the U.S. Senate election results yesterday, the Democrats are at 48 seats. The Republicans are at 48 seats. That means there are four Senate seats that are still too close to call or not ready to be called yet. Those are Alaska, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Now, Alaska is going to go to a Republican. It's, it's a matter of which Republican is it going to be because Alaska has a funky system where it's called ranked choice voting. So the best I can explain it is if one of the candidates doesn't get 50% of the vote then in the, in the first round of voting, then the top two candidates advance and the bottom candidates drop off and whoever voted for them they were able to put a second choice and then their second choice votes go towards the top two. Whoever of the, of the remaining top two candidates are still standing get those ranked choice votes from the candidates that fell off. So the top two vote getters in Alaska are both Republicans, but neither one right now are at 50% of the vote. So that race has not been called. So we'll know Republican will take that seat, but it's a matter of which Republican will take that seat whether it's a Trump-endorsed candidate or uh, the Republican incumbent Senator Murkowski who voted for the Trump impeachment. So it's a matter of which Republican gets that seat. But it may take some time to have the official results on that because some mail and other absentee ballots were counted last night. But, quote, subsequent counts will take place up to 15 days later because the state now uses ranked choice voting. If candidates do not win a majority of first choice votes, we may not know the winners until November 23rd. So it might be a bit on Alaska. But if you give Alaska to Republicans, which it will go to Republicans, just a matter of which, which Republican, that's 49 for Republicans, 48 for Democrats. Three Senate races hang in the balance. Georgia, as I already talked about, is a runoff election. So Georgia, we're going to know on December 6th. So wait, wait until then. That could decide the balance of power. That leaves Nevada and Arizona which are still currently counting votes for similar reasons. Nevada conducts a mostly mail ballot election, so ballots are still arriving. Right now, 77% of the vote is, is coming in in Nevada, has come in in Nevada, and the Republican, Adam Laxalt, is currently beating the incumbent Democrat 50% to 47%. That race, I think, looks like it's heading the Republicans' way. So that's Nevada, and of course Alaska. That puts 
Republicans at 50 seats in the Senate. Then we still have Arizona and Georgia. Arizona, I mentioned the governor candidate there, Carrie Lake, is currently a little bit behind, but it looks like the voting coming in will be in her favor and that she could be pushed over the edge. The same is true for the Republican candidate. Currently, because Democrats tend to vote earlier, those votes from the early voting and the early counting have gone more to the Democrat candidates, but as more votes come in, it's likely to favor the Republicans. So Blake Masters, the Senate candidate, the Republican candidate for Senate in Arizona, up against incumbent Democrat astronaut Mark Kelly. It's currently 51% for Mark Kelly, 46% for Blake Masters, but only 66% of the votes are in. So if Republicans take Alaska, which they will, that gives them 49. If they then take Nevada, which they're currently leading in, that gives them 50. If they take Arizona, that gives them 51. If the Democrats hold on in Arizona, that gives Democrats 49. So then you're at 49 and 50, and then it comes down to that runoff election in Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, and that one will be a really close race. I mean, if the Democrats end up winning that runoff, that'll make it 50-50, which is exactly where we started the day before the midterms began. 50-50 in the Senate. Kamala Harris is a tie-breaking vote. So Republicans still have a path to the majority here with Alaska, Nevada, and either one of Georgia and Arizona. So I still think the Republicans are favored to take the Senate, but it, it really could go either way. If, Republic, if Democrats hold on in Arizona and then they take the runoff in Georgia, we'll be right back where we were at 50-50. And at the end of the day, that's not a good night for Republicans because Repub Republicans should have won this easily with factors like inflation and a, with a president with a historically low approval rating. And I shouldn't forget the very important Senate race in Pennsylvania between Democrat Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and celebrity doctor Trump-endorsed Mehmet Oz. Currently where that race stands, Fetterman has won 50.5% of the vote to 47.1% of the vote for Oz. More than 95% of the vote is in, so John Fetterman has been elected to the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. And that race is shocking because John Fetterman had a stroke, and I'm not belittling that at all. But if you watch the debate, which I did, he had trouble finishing two sentences together. He couldn't even communicate in a coherent fashion whatsoever. And when you combine those with the other factors from this year, inflation and the southern border and energy prices, it's very hard to imagine that Fetterman could have won. But there were a few local factors that contributed to that win. One being is that the Republican candidate for governor was not very strong, Mastriano. And I saw where several political consultants were saying he was missing in action. He didn't campaign enough. He wasn't accessible. He just was viewed as too far right from a lot of Pennsylvanians. And the Democrat candidate for governor, Josh Shapiro, really wiped the floor with him. In that race. And so when the Republican candidate for governor performed poorly, that drug Oz down. Oz lost by about 3%, 50 to 47. That was one factor. The other factor is the debate where John Fetterman was seen on stage and he couldn't finish two sentences, that occurred in October. But early voting in Pennsylvania starts really, really early, ridiculously early, in my opinion. I believe late August or early September. And so I read somewhere that there was more than 40% of the vote, and I don't don't quote me on these numbers, but there was a lot of the vote that came in the early voting before the Fetterman-Oz debate. And a lot of political analysts say had the early voting not been the case, had the election started after the debate, Oz would be the winner tonight or last night during the election. 
but Fetterman pulled it out. And it begs the question, how can somebody that has that kind of health consequences or that kind of speaking problems or whatever that may be, how could he have won? And I'll, I'll analyze that a little bit at the end, but those two local factors, the governor candidate dragging down the Republican and the, the early voting before the debate had a big impact in Pennsylvania. And in addition to some macro factors that I think are takeaways from this midterm election, which I'll, t- I'll touch on at the end. So hold that thought. But that's the Senate race in Pennsylvania. There were also Democrats who hung on in the Senate in New Hampshire and Washington. Those are traditionally blue voting states. But we thought, the Republican Party thought, that the Republican candidates in those races had a pretty good shot. And when I saw the New Hampshire race as far apart as it was for Senate, that was another indicator to me early on in the night that we were not going to be seeing a red tsunami. That race ended up being 53 to 45 with incumbent Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Likewise, in the state of Washington, traditionally blue state, very unlikely for a Republican to win, there was a there was incumbent Patty Murray who was up against Tiffany Smiley. And a lot of people were excited about Republican Tiffany Smiley, but right now with 57% of the votes in, the incumbent Democrat is up 57 to 43. That's a 14 percentage point win right now. However, the state has an all-male election, so ballots postmarked by election day may arrive up to three weeks later, though most will arrive within this week. So there's still a lot of vote to be counted there, but that was a situation where the race has been called for the incumbent Democrat, and we thought that would be closer in Washington between Tiffany Smiley and the incumbent. So so big picture is Republicans took some governorships. Democrats took some governorships. The House will be in Republican control, but it'll be by not a whole lot. The margin won't be very big. The Senate is a toss-up. It could still go to the Republicans, but again, just barely. The Democrats could hold on, but just barely. And that's, that's, that's a win for Democrats because... This election was seen as something that was supposed to be really in the Republicans' favor. And so for the Democrats to hold on that well and to prevent this red wave, that is something that's extremely of note. And then that begs the question, why? What, what's happening in this country? And how, did that, how, how could that happen? How could gas prices be so high and inflation be so high and, and the border be unsafe and lots of other issues from a global standpoint, a president that is aging and having some trouble keeping up with the job. How could it not be more of a blowout for Republicans than it was? And that's what we need to explore and think about over the next days, weeks, and months, especially as we head into 2024. I'll talk about that on my upcoming news update on Monday. So this is a Wednesday post-election update, but I'm going to have a news update as we learn more over the next several days, and I will release that on Monday morning. So be sure to check that out, the Sean Sandifer Show news update on Monday morning where I will get into more of the why, but just a a few quick thoughts. Number one, we have a divided country. Not as divided as we have been in the past, see the Civil War, but we have a very divided country where people are pretty set in their ways, where it doesn't really matter the candidate as much. You look at the the John Fetterman's case, they were voting for, for their viewpoint, for someone to vote as their viewpoint in Pennsylvania. Had the Republican candidate been better there, I think in Oz's case, he looked kind of like a New Jersey transplant, a little bit out of touch with your everyday Pennsylvanian. Had the Republican candidate been better there, could could Republicans have won in Pennsylvania? I think so. But we have a very divided country, and it's almost as if it doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. There's 
Democrats think what they think, Republicans think what they think, and it, it about holds true to that, that way when people are voting. I also think people acknowledge the economy is bad. I think people see the inflation, but they don't necessarily blame Joe Biden. And if you're a Democrat voter, I would love to hear from you. And I want to have some Democrats on my to join me on the podcast sometime because I want to know. For me, the economy is in such dire shape. And what we've seen the last two years from a results perspective has been so bad. How could you go into the voting booth and elect the same policies that are creating a country where it's unmanageable to live from cost of living standpoint, where we don't have good energy, where we have bad foreign policy in a lot of different ways. What what has made you vote for a Democrat? I don't mean that in an insulting way. I would like to understand better what is making people vote Democrat. What issues are important to you that you go into the voting booth and you circle John Fetterman over Oz? I would be very curious to learn that. And so feel free to send me an email. I try my best to understand both viewpoints. That's one of my jobs as a lawyer, as a, a upcoming leader in my generation, that I want to understand where people come from. And as a lawyer, I have to do that when I'm working with a client or when I'm working on a case and, and forming arguments for the other side. That serves me very well. So I really don't know. But I'm going to put some thoughts together. I have some more thoughts I want to share on what's going on and you know, we also talk about the the Trump effect and we talk about DeSantis. And I'm going to think about that and I'm going to unpack that more on my Monday episode and talk about that. But my last point is this. I think the Republican Party has a branding problem. Okay? We have a lot of the younger conservative influencers, in my opinion, are they come off a bit abrasive. And it alienates a large proportion of the electorate because the modern conservative influencers their appeal only goes to about 30 percent of people and i have to be careful here because i want to work with i want to create a big tent party and i want to work with people all throughout the republican party but if you think of people like charlie kirk tommy loren on one side of the spectrum marjorie taylor green then you go to another side and you see you think of people like liz cheney Mitt Romney, neither one of those sides appeals to a broad enough electorate. One is too catering to one extreme of the party, and the other side, the Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney side, looks weak, looks ineffective, looks disloyal. And so there's an opportunity here. There's a rebranding that needs to be done, and it's right in the middle of those two camps. And it's to create a big tent party in the Republican Party to expand the Republican Party reach, as we're seeing with Hispanic voters, Latino voters, black voters. We're seeing the Republican Party expand, but we have to have leadership. We have to have voices, especially younger voices like myself in the party and in the movement that are, that are in the middle of those two sides, the really far right extreme and then the, the overly moderate, weak and ineffective side. Of the party. For me, I identify as a progressive populist Republican. I support LGBTQ rights. I support health care for all people. We live in the richest country on earth, the most successful country on earth by many metrics. Why can we not guarantee health care as a human right? 
But I also support limited government. I support individual freedom. I don't support cancel culture. I support a secure border. I support a strong national defense. And that is the message that needs to be sent. We've got to get off of this, you know, this stuff where we're all we want to talk about all day is anti-wokeness or anti-transgenderism or whatever you want to talk about. That has to stop. That stuff's not appealing to people. We have to talk about the issues that matter, and we have to be strong and effective. And in terms of the culture war, we've got to pick our battles. We've got to pick our battles. There's more that we can talk about on gun issues. There's more that needs to be discussed on the abortion issue. I think the abortion issue is a big one that turns a lot of people off from certain Republicans. It doesn't mean abandoning your principles, but it is important to think about what branding needs to be done and what issues need to be focused on. And I think... There's an emerging part of the party right in the middle that says we're going to be strong, we're going to be assertive, we're going to choose our battles, but we're going to govern with strength and consistency and integrity, and that is what the people are looking for. The Republican Party must think more about our quality of candidates that we're putting forward. We must think about our branding, our messaging, and we must get better on appealing to a wider range of people because there's no excuse for this election. There's no excuse that this election performed the way that Republicans did. Sure, Republicans took back the House. There were some good victories in governorships. There was some Senate races that were won or that, that looked like they can be won. But at the end of the day, this election was much closer than it should have been given all of the factors at play here. And so what that means is the country is very divided and the party that's going to win, the party that's going to win and thereby govern, and by governing they're going to implement policy that makes people's lives better and makes the country stronger, is going to be the party who can appeal to the broadest range of people, who can speak to all people. That doesn't mean be weak. That doesn't mean water down your message. But that means get really smart, get really focused on putting together quality voices, quality candidates to come together and bring people together to create a big tent party and a big movement that can win. And I will discuss more as we learn more at the end of this week. I will discuss more on my Monday morning news roundup this coming Monday. Be sure to check it out. I am Sean Sandifer, your host. This is The Sean Sandifer Show. Thank you for listening to The Sean Sandifer Show. This episode is over, but you can connect with Sean on Instagram and TikTok at Sean Sandifer or on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Sean Sandifer Show. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to share it on your social media pages or Instagram story. And we'd be grateful if you would help us grow the show by submitting a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, we always love hearing your feedback, questions, and comments. Please feel free to message Sean on social media or send an email to hello, that's H-E-L-L-O, at theshawnsandifershow.com. Thanks for being a member of the Sean Sandifer Show community. The Sean Sandifer Show, available wherever you listen to podcasts.